The biggest misconception people have is that you're losing control. Somebody will take control of your mind. And in fact, all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis. It's a state in which you can gain control over your body and your mind. And that's what we teach people to do. That's how Reverie is designed to help teach people how to do that. And I'm trying the best way I can to demythologize the concerns people have. There is so much value to be had that's being hidden behind a wall or a facade of historical caricature. Hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention. It's something like looking through the zoom lens in a camera. You see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We are neurologists, scientists, and authors of two best-selling books and parents to two amazing humans. In a world where our understanding of brain health is constantly evolving, join us as we unravel the mysteries of the human brain. Through captivating conversations, insightful interviews, and thought-provoking discussions, we empower you with the knowledge and tools to optimize brain function and prevent cognitive decline. From nutrition, exercise, restorative sleep, to building cognitive resilience and the impact of technology, we explore the fascinating connections between brain health and other facets of our lives. Get ready to unlock the potential of your brain and embrace a life of vitality. Today, our guest is Dr. David Spiegel, Associate Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neurosciences at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's also the director of Stanford Center on Stress and Health. Dr. Spiegel is a well-published researcher, book author, and a clinician, and his particular focus is on the clinical applications of hypnosis. His research has indicated that hypnosis could potentially improve symptoms of stress, chronic anxiety, chronic pain, and other psychiatric conditions. In this episode, we discussed hypnosis, what it is, why is it often misunderstood, its clinical application, and how it can help with managing pain, reducing stress, and addressing issues like phobias and sleep problems. This was a very informative conversation. Please note that the discussion in this episode touches on some sensitive topics like trauma, sexual assault, and recovery. We hope you find the conversation enlightening and helpful. Thank you for joining us today. It's wonderful to have you here. Dean and I have had the pleasure of reading some of your articles and papers about hypnosis and brain health in the past. I recall as a fellow, I read a couple of your papers, so it's such a pleasure to sit here with you and speak with you. You speak extensively about hypnotherapy and hypnosis. And when you talk about hypnosis with somebody who's not in the realm of psychiatry or neurology, they have a very skewed view of what that is. And thanks to movies and stories and novels, people have a very different perspective about it and may actually be quite apprehensive. So who better than you to give us a, di- a definition of what hypnosis is, if you could start there with us. Sure, I- I- I'd be glad to. Hypnosis is a state of highly focused attention. It's something like looking through the zoom lens in a camera. You see with great detail, but you're less aware of the context. In order to do that, you dissociate. You put outside of conscious awareness things that would ordinarily be in consciousness. Right now, you're both sitting next to one another, sitting, I presume, on chairs. But until I mentioned it, hopefully you weren't even aware of your body's sensations touching the chairs. If you were, we could probably just stop the interview. Attention is this 
intensity of focus, hypnotic attention, coupled with dissociation. And the third part of it is what used to be called um, suggestibility, which is a term I really don't like. It's cognitive flexibility. It's an ability to let go of the parts of yourself that think, who am I? Can I do this? Should I do this? What will people think of me if I do it? It's part of what we call the default mode network in the posterior cortex in the brain. The more you engage you are with hypnosis, the less you are thinking about, well, is this the way I usually do things or not? So absorption, dissociation, cognitive flexibility, those are the three things. And if you think about it as neurologists, that that would be a brain state that would be supportive of change and growth. It's an opportunity to concentrate intently on a new point of view, to put outside of awareness things you'd rather pay less attention to, like, say, pain or physical stress. And it's an opportunity to do it in a way that opens you up to saying, I could be different. I could do this differently. So before you have to be told that you should do it, you can just try it and see what it feels like. That's what hypnosis is like. This is a particular interest to me because I always use the term focus is the gatekeeper of consciousness. A focus is enhanced. A focus is sharpened. An entire gateway of conscious capacity opens up that would not be otherwise available to us. And this is something we see on a daily basis from ICU states where people are in coma, coming out of coma. And the one common denominator is the first thing, the first hook, the first latch is that awareness, that focus that needs to be had. You're actually talking about the other end where the rest of us, whether knowingly or not knowingly, are walking in semi-fugues. But being able to clean up that state and to truly get to the depth of awareness. That's a beautiful concept that I think people can really understand the, the value of it. I wanted to actually start with a story. In pre-medical school, we all do volunteering and all kinds of stuff. And I even did that before even thinking about medical school. But this one volunteer place I worked in, in Fairfax, Virginia, it was a suicide prevention line. And I was one of the people online with working with a psychiatrist. And that's where I first became aware of hypnosis. And one of the people she was treating was this person that had severe depression. And she used hypnosis. And at the time, I wasn't aware of how in particular, as a tool to give greater awareness, almost like a cognitive behavioral therapy, being aware of the cognition, being aware of the self, being aware of the inner state, which was just beautiful thing to see. That actually has intrigued me. People want everything well-defined and well-circumscribed. But in this case, uh, I think there's so much value to be had that's being hidden behind a wall or a facade of historical caricature. You actually have tried in the past to redefine it, rename it, because by doing so, you get to the crux of what it is spelling out or taking out the things that have added on as dirt over time well i've thought about the renaming thing we've tried things like neurohypnology for example but here's the problem I, i've used hypnosis with about seven thousand patients and i've written hundreds of articles and several books and a bunch of other things about it what frustrates me the most is that hypnosis is the oldest western conception of a psychotherapy it's the first time a talking interaction between a doctor and a patient was thought to have therapeutic potential i had an occasion when i was a medical student at the maudsley in in london i thought Anna Freud is still practicing here. Why don't I just send her a note? And to my amazement, she wrote back right away and sent me an invitation to visit her in her office in Maresfield Gardens. I have never felt um, as connected with a stranger as I did with her. These beautiful, light, bright blue eyes looked you right in the eye. She didn't miss a trick. 
She said, um, so what interests you in psychiatry? I said, well, it happens that both of my parents are psychiatrists and psychoanalysts, and they told me I was free to be any kind of psychiatrist I wanted to be, and here I am. <laughs> she said, so are you going to be an analyst? And I was trying to be diplomatic about this, and I said, uh, I'm, I haven't decided yet. And she said, so you're not going to be an analyst. I mean, no, no. She said, why? And I said, well... Part of what troubles me about the analytic pose is that you're doing so little. You're listening a lot. You're saying very little. You're not supposed to suggest much. I want to help people more, and I find it frustrating to be in that position. She said, there's something you need to understand. When my father started his work, it was considered a waste of time for a doctor to listen to a patient. Patients were there Mm -hmm. to listen to doctors. So he was conveying profound respect to them by just listening. It was a wonderful point. I thanked her for it. I still didn't become a psychoanalyst, but Freud himself started his work with hypnosis. He learned to use hypnosis. He studied with Charcot uh, at the Salpetriere. He actually traded his participation in the course for translating Charcot's work into German from French. His early work was looking at the relationship between current stress, early life stress, and symptoms. So was there some trauma history that he could do something about? He gave that up in part in his autobiography. There's this wonderful story where he says, I was relieving a patient of her attacks of pain from there by going back to their traumatic origins uh, when she suddenly woke out of the trance, threw her arms around my neck. And he wrote, I was modest enough not to attribute this event to my own irresistible personal attractiveness. He discovered transference, the mysterious element beneath hypnosis. We owe a lot of other things to Freud and what has come since. But Hypnosis deserves more respect than it gets, and it's a shame that people still are afraid of it. The biggest misconception people have is that you're losing control. Somebody will take control of your mind. And in fact, all hypnosis is really self-hypnosis, and it's a state in which you can gain control over your body and your mind. And that's what we teach people to do. That's how Reverie is designed to help teach people how to do that. And just 20 or 30 years ago, I wouldn't have dared to put out on the web teaching people to do self-hypnosis. Now we know it works. It does not create problems. It helps people solve problems. I'm trying the best way I can to demythologize the concerns people have. I think there's incredible value in in hypnosis, even at the physiological level, greater connectivity to cingulate versus frontal lobe and the limbic system, all of those pathways that, that we need, we absolutely need awareness of. We've been blindly going through the sea of neurological interactions without any control over them for, for, for millennia. Yet, I think you're right. We do have control. We do have profound control over just that. If that's what hypnosis is, and I agree with you, it's very difficult to talk to people to get their qualms and their worries out of it because, as you said, there's no harm in hypnosis, yet we do see that people do lose control with hypnosis when they're, of course, some of this just parlor, it's just trickery and and some of it is fake. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's losing control and I would be delighted to talk about what we understand about the neurobiology of hypnosis. Mm -hmm. There's plenty. But what I would say is it's the way we conceptualize it. One man's loss of control is another increase in flexibility and seeing things from new points of view. One of the things that people who use hypnosis get good at is focusing on what you're for, not what you're against. If you tell yourself don't smoke, what are you thinking about smoking? If I tell you don't think about purple elephants, What are you thinking about? 
Instead, focus on reprogramming the way your brain is going to work and how you're going to approach a problem. Will football coaches make fools of themselves by dancing like a ballerina in some of these stage shows? Sure. They are also letting go of their usual view of who they are. Now, you can do that to become a kind of a joke in, in front of an audience, or you can do it to say, I've been approaching this problem of my fear of flying or my difficulty sleeping the wrong way for a long time, and I can mm -hmm. approach it from a different point of view. That's therapeutic potential. It is the case in these stage show things, which I'm not a big fan of, that they don't take the first five people that come up on the stage. They work through half the audience till they get the 10% yeah. who are extremely hypnotizable. And then they do all of that fancy stuff where you're lying between two chairs and all this stuff. It does show that people can do unusual things in hypnosis, but I don't like the whole context of it. I think, I, I think that troubles me. We also don't think about sort of the unthought of implications of situations like that. My late father, who, was, who studied hypnosis and used it in World War II in North Africa, had a patient brought to him, a neurologist up at Columbia, said, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, you're going to see this patient. She was wandering around the streets of Manhattan at 3 in the morning, totally disoriented. What had happened was she was in a, one of these stage show things. She was the trophy wife uh, of a very wealthy man. And the hypnotist said, look, there's a nice little bird in your hand. Why don't you play with the bird? So she holds her hands like this and starts playing with the bird. And he says, and now the bird's going to fly away. And she suddenly starts to cry and she gets very upset and her hands start to shake. And it's kind of spoiling the show. So he uh -huh. gets her off the stage and she's wandering around the streets. It turned out she saw that as an image of what she was doing with her life, that she was a bird in a gilded cage and would mm -hmm. not leave. She was afraid to leave. And so we need to think about the profound ways in which we can touch people. It can be upsetting at times, but she wound up better off ultimately for having finally mm -hmm. confronted that situation. There are things going on in the brain that aren't mystical, they're knowable. And we've been doing functional magnetic yeah. resonance imaging for people who are high and low in hypnotizability. If you'd like, I can talk to you about what we've found about what's going on in the brain. And I'd be interested in your reactions to it from, from your perspective. Yes, this is actually a good segue to go into that. If you could tell us what exactly happens in the brain when somebody's going through hypnosis. So there are three major things that happen. We took large numbers of high and low hypnotizable people, and we assessed them first just without hypnotizing them. We just measured their hypnotizability. We can do that on, on the Reverie app. In six minutes, you can do a standard test that we call the hypnotic induction profile, which involves you imagining your hand floating up in the air. You pull it down, you see if it will go back by itself. If you lose a sense of control, you have a sense of involuntariness uh, with the hand wanting to go up and then responding to the cutoff signal. We can score it from zero to 10. It's, a, it's as reliable a measure in adult life as IQ. Highly hypnotizable people have more functional connectivity between the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the anterior cingulate cortex. Now, that's interesting because the executive control network is what I'm hopefully using now and talking to you, thinking, planning. The anterior cingulate, particularly the dorsal region, it's a stress sensor. It, it, it helps us understand when there's something maybe you should be worried about. Part of the salience network involved in pain perception mm -hmm. as well. If you turn down activity in that area, you're less likely to be distracted by things. That's what helps you intensify the focus in hypnosis. So more hypnotizable people have more connectivity between those two regions. So the next set of studies we did, we took high and low hypnotizable people, put them in the scanner, 
and hypnotized them in some of the conditions we use. Three things happened. Activity was turned down in the salience network, particularly the anterior cingulate gyrus. Secondly, there was more functional connectivity between the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the insula, this mm -hmm. wonderful mind-body relay, which helps the brain Correct. control the body and also fosters interoception, perception of what's going on in the body. The third thing that happens is that the more you're using your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, your executive control region, the less activity there is in the posterior cingulate cortex. And that's where you get the cognitive flexibility. When you're engaged in a hypnotic task, you're much less likely in hypnosis to think, I would never do something like that. Why would I think that way? Why would I do that? You just do it and see what happens. A different way of looking at this, would, would you say that the inhibitions are, are reduced? The natural inhibitions, the default inhibitions are controlled or reduced? That's an interesting way to, to put it, uh, Dean. I would say um, to some extent that's probably true, but it's different from the kind of disinhibition you get when you're drunk. It's not, I'll do whatever the hell I feel like. It's more, you're less likely at the time to reflect, why, why would I do this? I've never done anything like this before. Um, how could mm. I do it? So to give you an example, the way we use this to help people stop smoking we don't say don't smoke because all you do is think about smoking. We say, for my body, think about this, smoking's a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. So you're thinking about it differently. Most people, I have an impulse. I want to smoke or I need the nicotine or I need something to do with my hands or something like that. You're focusing instead on your relationship with your body. You're seeing the situation from a totally different point of view. Would you ever put tar and nicotine into the lungs of your baby or your pet dog? Never, no way. So you focus on what you're for, respecting and protecting your body. And from that moment on, you, you're not feeling you're depriving yourself. You're feeling good about yourself. You pat mm -hmm. yourself on the back. I am finally being a good parent to my own body. That's a kind of cognitive flexibility that I wouldn't call being sort of impulsive, I'd call it as being thoughtfully different. And that's what people can do in hypnosis. There are two different directions of thought. The reality that, just to use your own word, it's a heightened state of focus on things that you choose to focus and right. to maintain that focus. The maintenance is as important to create a habitual pathway of that focus. That's incredibly valuable because as it happens, all of us want to quit smoking, let's say, well, I don't smoke, I never smoke, but let's say if you, you are a smoker, if something happens that that focus is lost. Or in my case, we're very healthy eaters, plant-based only and exercise all. But if there's a piece of unhealthy food, a, a chocolate or something, that focus is gone. I mean, somebody like me, that's, I, I consider myself pretty disciplined. What happens there is that that focus towards that thing that you've actually created a tag to that, to that ultimate aim is not strong enough. It's not visceral enough. This actually creates that visceral connection that's per more permanently entangled. That makes sense to me. And to me, it's incredibly valuable. To be honest, this is an unusual conversation for us, but we were intrigued because of this very fact that you you actually alluded to this. Well, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And I, the, the sort of everyday analogy that helps people understand hypnosis is do you ever get so caught up in a good movie that you forget you're watching the movie and you enter the imagined world? And with good movies, you do. And later on, you may think, well, actually, that the lead character wasn't so plausible and I didn't like her in the last movie. And all. But at the time, you're just in the movie. You're engaged in it. So that intensity of focus means that 
as you point out, the range of alternatives is is narrowed somewhat, right? Yes. So in the example you gave about bad pizza is sort of like normally you both have a strong commitment to respecting and protecting your body. I am my mm-hmm. body's keeper. I'm going to only put things in it that are good for it, not bad for it. But then you see this stale pizza around and you kind of let go of that. You drift away from that commitment. And the nice thing about hypnosis is it can help you reconnect with your primary commitment to respect and protect your body and not get hijacked by the temptation of something that might temporarily taste good but not be good for your body. So it's a matter of having focus and having discipline about the focus, being able to keep focused on what feels important to you. We'll take a moment halfway through discussing this fascinating topic to talk about Neuroacademy, an online community for those who are interested in learning more about living a brain-healthy life. Neuroacademy is an online community of over 500 members now, and its goal is to help you expand your knowledge about the latest advances in brain health and applying all that knowledge towards your well-being. It's one thing to have the knowledge, but a completely different experience to have a team of experts that will help you translate that knowledge into your daily life. And Neuroacademy serves both of those goals. Dive into a collection of on-demand courses that cover various aspects of brain health, whether you're interested in learning about optimal nutrition, exercise, building resilience, or the science of lifestyle choices and cognitive well-being, you'll find courses to satisfy your curiosity. Plus, you can earn certifications and request CE and CME credits. Every Monday, join us for a live Q&A session, get direct answers to your burning questions, and interact with the lovely community. On Fridays, participate in our live cooking sessions to learn brain-boosting recipes that you can make in your own kitchen. And if you're a culinary enthusiast, connect with like-minded members in the Neuro Cooking Club, where you can share your passion for brain-healthy cuisine. There are various interest clubs, such as the Neuro Book Club, Exercise Club, Gardening Club, and more. Visit neuroacademy.com to learn more and invest in your brain's well-being for a brighter, healthier future. Now let's get back to our discussion. Most of the time, what stops people is inhibitions, fears that are not even on the surface, your own limitations that you've placed without even being aware of it. If it's not getting you to a goal that's achievable, then there are subconscious. I'm not I'm not getting psychoanalytical with you here, but, but the kind of there's go ahead, go for it. Yeah, there, there are the subconscious limitations that we put that don't allow us to get to that ultimate next step and next step and next step, which is required. And if a tool like this can give you access, give you focus to go deeper and, and to achieve that, I think it's, it's going to be one of the most useful tools ever, given the fact that it's focusing on the thing that's meaningful. So that's, that's a value I see in this as well. Another way of, instead of this 10 years of psychoanalysis, which I'm fine with it, that's okay. I have an uncle who is a psychoanalyst in Paris, imagine that. But a systematic way of truly getting deeper behind the inhibitions by getting deeper focus is I think an incredible tool in itself. Well, it's a matter, uh, you're absolutely right, it's a matter of what are you focusing on and having flexibility about what you focus on. So in a way, I think of hypnosis as psychotherapy from the bottom and the body up instead of the top down. With psychoanalysis, which uh, one of my colleagues called the process of adding insight to injury, (laughs) 
it's it's a process whereby you try to first come to understand what's wrong with you and then try to fix it. And in fact, when I was trained, it was thought it was dangerous to get rid of somebody's airplane phobia before you understood the psychodynamic reasons underneath it, that something horrible would happen. Well, that's just not true. Two thirds of the people I see once will be on an airplane happily flying off and send me emails and text messages about it. So that's just not the case. If you can be in a frame of mind where you can try out being different and see what it feels like. Now, you can do that in a bad way. You can make a fool of yourself in front of people in a theater. But you can also just see what it feels like, even if you're confronted, say, with that nasty piece of pizza. Can I (laughs) concentrate instead on what it would feel like to taste the pizza versus what it would feel like to put something I know is bad into my body? And I would feel different about that. And it's that sense of making a choice about what you focus on that gives you tremendous therapeutic opportunity and flexibility. I, I had one patient in, in one of our studies who didn't even really want to stop smoking, but she said, well, what the hell, it's a study. I'll get some uh, free equipment to use and all this. So I'll try it. And the first time she tried it, she didn't like it much. She went home that night. She, she did turned on reverie for my body, smoking's a poison. I need my body to live. I owe my body respect and protection. She lit up a cigarette. She looked at it and she said, Feh, who needs this? 25 years she had smoked without stopping once and without even particularly wanting to. And she said to me, Dr. Spiegel, this is some kind of crazy ass voodoo shit. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> and she's now going around helping her friends to stop smoking. And so there was no analysis of self-punitive things or histories of failure or I can't succeed when I intend to. It was all about I can shift gears and try focusing on something that makes sense to me, that taps into some other value of mine that's very important, looking after my body, and, and I can make a change in a hurry. People will tell for themselves within 10 minutes whether they feel less anxious, whether they feel more likely to be able to go to sleep, whether their approach to smoking is different. And so they'll know whether or not it works. It, you don't have to take my word for it. Just take the experience and see what happens. Beautiful, yeah. beautiful. While you were speaking and giving examples of, of, of your patients, it sounds almost like you're giving them more than just a deeper state of concentration and receptiveness. You're providing them with the right verbiage and the language to get themselves out of a situation and have words and concepts to describe what is actually happening. It's almost as if you're putting a situation under a microscope and seeing this this cosmos of cause and effect in your body. So for people to have the language, like this lady that you just described who quit smoking after 20-something years of smoking, do you think that someone who is dealing with a lot of complex situations in their lives and may not have the capacity to kind of go deeper into that state where they are aware of themselves, aware of their environment, are there situations where people just can't because there's just so much noise in their lives? Have you seen that happen? Yes, I have. And uh, I can give you uh, one example that comes to mind, Aisha, is a woman who was born and raised as a girl in a country that does not treat women very well. Um, she found as a teenage girl that she said, my body was not my own. Men could say anything they wanted on the street. It turned out she'd been depressed much of her life. She, it turned out that she had been raped by the landlord when she was 12 years old, and her family was afraid to do anything 
because they were afraid they'd be thrown out of their apartment. So finally, they got out of the country. They got to the U.S. She became a healthcare professional and had a reasonably successful life, but was always chronically depressed and uh, retired early. And she came to see me and she was very hypnotizable. The first thing I always do is test hypnotizability. She was very hypnotizable. And I said to her, I want you to pretend you're your own mother when you were that 12-year-old girl. And I want you to look at yourself right after you were raped by this landlord. And I want you to answer one question for me. Was this your fault? Did you deserve this? And she said, I'm stroking her hair. I'm stroking her hair. And she just kept comforting herself as this 12-year-old girl. Many people who have been sexually assaulted or assaulted in other ways blame themselves for events they didn't control. We'd rather feel guilty than helpless. And so the, the price of that is that it's your fault. You must have deserved it somehow, which is not the case. And she called me about a week later and she said, Dr. Spiegel, my psychiatrist wants to know what you did to me because I'm not depressed anymore. She said, my friends don't recognize me. They don't know who I am. And I just got a text from her six months later saying, I'm still feeling so good. I just don't feel depressed. And so, yes, it was a, it was a moment where she could see something that had haunted her her entire life for very understandable reasons from a different point of view and allowed herself to feel differently about it. So um, can that happen? Yes. It can. It's cutting yourself loose from an old habitual way of seeing yourself and trying on a different way and seeing what it feels like. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. That's a great example of, of how it can make a significant difference in an outcome. For our audience who may not be very well versed in what happens in a psychiatrist's clinic or the, the, the details of what this may look like, I think it's important to touch on the differences between stage hypnosis and clinical hypnosis. Yeah. Could you share some details about that? Well, one of the problems is that stage hypnosis is there for entertainment purposes, period. It's not there to help people. And so if things come up that aren't helpful or even harmful, that's the only problem of the person doing the stage hypnosis is to entertain the audience. And they don't particularly care what happens to the person during, before, or after. Whereas when you go to someone to help you with hypnosis, you want to go to a licensed and trained professional who's, first of all, got skill in helping you assess what's wrong, what's going on with you. I could not have been so helpful to that woman if I didn't have a lot of experience dealing with people who have been physically and sexually abused and understanding what effects it has. And so you want someone who's a trained professional and who, where the purpose of your encounter is to help understand your problem and help you get better. It's not to put on a good show. So... The whole purpose of it is, is different, and the kind of training and experience you would have is necessarily different, too. So if you're curious about hypnosis, great. Go to Reverie from the App Store or Google Play, or go to a licensed and trained professional who can assess you and help you uh, learn more <laughs> about your ability to use hypnosis. Amazing. Is it true that the methodology of hypnosis is different or do you, is there a validated way to do that? One mm -hmm. way in which my approach to hypnosis is somewhat different from many, but not by no, no means all of my colleagues, is I start out assessing a person's hypnotizability, or as you call it, suggestibility. There are reliable differences in hypnotizability. We've classified them into three types. There's 
the poet, the person who just gives their heart to an experience, gets immersed in it, makes the most of it, and just goes with the flow, goes with it. Those are highly hypnotizable people. There's the diplomat, the people who will try it for a while, negotiate. I think I had this different feeling, but I'm not sure. I wonder what it means. Is the doctor really telling me the right thing to do or not? I'm not sure. And uh, then there's the researcher. The low hypnotizables are the people who want to read about it before they try it, who have to think it through. And people do reliably differ. It's good to know that. I, I see some fingers being pointed here. That, yeah, that would yeah, be yeah. me. Both of us. Such a yeah. skeptic uh, at yeah. heart. Yeah, yeah. They have strengths and they have weaknesses. And it's yeah. good to use hypnosis in a way that is respectful of the person's ability. If I have someone who's extremely hypnotizable, I just basically show them what to do, help guide them through it, and let mm -hmm. them do it. I had uh, two women, it happened at the same time, who both had trichotillomania, this pathological hair pulling. Yes. One of them was extremely hypnotizable, a very beautiful woman whose hairdresser was kind of entranced with her and would do her hair for free if he could take photos and put them on the wall of the, the salon. But he started to come on to her and she was not comfortable with it and didn't know how to say no. And that's often a problem with highly hypnotizable people is that they, mm -hmm. they just sort of go along with the flow. So she started pulling at her hair. So that it was so unattractive that he would stop coming on to her and stop using her photos in the, in the shop. I said she loved taking care of animals, of stray animals. She'd stop her car on a highway if there was an injured dog by the road, side of the road and take care of it. And I said, would you ever just sit there and pull the hair out of the skin of the dog that you were trying to help? Would you ever do that? She said, of course not. I said, well, then why not treat your body the same way you would treat this poor dog? Mm -hmm. So if you notice this part of your body, don't hurt it, stroke it. So she started stroking the hair, and she just stopped like that. The other woman was the researcher type. She said, it's a way of getting at my naughty nerves. She was a very rigid, obsessional, controlling kind of person. When she'd have a problem, she'd get more and more wound up about it, and she'd start pulling out her hair. So I explained to her the capacity to think about respecting, protecting her body, and that she wasn't making solving the problem any easier by adding another problem which was with the damage she was doing to her body. So she comes back the next week with a graph of the percent of pre-intervention hair pulling. And naturally, <laughs> it got worse the first week. And, but gradually, over the next couple of weeks, it actually got better despite herself. She did it in a more gradual, but on her terms, not on mine. Aisha would come to you with a table <laughs> all collated. <laughs> With the with the with the regression model that that's already laid down going forward into a year. I'm yeah. laughing because I think he's right. But yes. I, I wouldn't worry about it because her hair looks terrific, so I don't think. Thank gonna... you. Yes. And people in the mid range, you can sort of negotiate more. So I approach people in those three general patterns, depending on how hypnotizable they are, to use their hypnotic capacity as efficiently as possible. There are some people who think that everybody is potentially fully hypnotizable if you just take enough time and talk to them long enough. I personally think that's a waste of time. It's not worth doing it. The other thing to keep in mind is you, you mentioned your teenage children. You may remember them when they were seven or eight. All eight-year-olds are in trances all the time, right? They're out playing. You call them in for dinner. They don't even hear you. When you're a kid, you have a big brain that needs to be filled up with stuff. And play and work are all the same thing for a child. It's wonderful. And hypnosis is a bit of that childlike style of learning that we can continue to use as we get older.
uh, as long as we use it properly. Uh, on a tangent, so this is so interesting to me. Is this in any way, I think I can make the connection. Uh, so frontotemporal lobe dementia patients, mm. some of them who uh, prior to developing the beginnings of FTD, a great number of them develop artistic or expressive capacities that they had never exhibited before, except when they were children. And I'm wondering if this is in any way connected to that. This is, comes to my previous statement of inhibition. Also sleep. During sleep, our dopamine pathways are completely different. Our creative pathways open up. Our relation between the frontal not so much executive, but creative states. That's why a lot of, this, I don't want to over extrapolate, overstate the statement, but people, a lot of the discoveries actually either happen during sleep or right. manifest right after they are awakened. So there's a different state or different relationship between your sense of openness during sleep, during childhood, and then FTD, which tells me that there's something that happens. That's why my previous statement, that maybe we actually create blockades or patterns of closure that hypnosis can open to us. I think that that's a, a wonderful idea. And I think, in fact, we over control ourselves that sometimes we do our best, most creative work when we're out taking a walk in the woods or something like that. There's a famous story of Kukuli, who was the, the founder of organic chemistry, and he was trying to figure out how carbon atoms work. And it just didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And one night he had a dream of a snake biting its tail. Mm -hmm. And there he got the idea that the carbon atom had, could connect through six uh, junctions to form a ring. And that's how organic chemistry began. He had a problem. He hadn't been able to solve the problem. And then he did that. So I think you're absolutely right that, that we, in a sense, we sometimes overutilize the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. We're trying to logically yes. figure everything out all the time. And the posterior cingulate, we're thinking about our usual patterns of doing things, and we tend to be creatures of habit. And those two things can be very useful a lot of the time, but it can also get in the way of something novel, of trying to do something in a different way, just the way you're describing it. That sometimes, and it may be true with frontotemporal dementia as well, that it sort of disrupts the circuits that kept your brain working in a certain way and allows other circuits to express themselves that otherwise were suppressed. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I, I think it's such a unique opportunity to look at the brain and its relationships very differently. And I love your approach, which is you don't have to go through 10 years of analysis. There could be a, um, a wormhole of awareness with just the right verbiage, the right state of awareness placed in the right place. Like you said, the lady that wasn't smoking, an appropriate relationship of words to herself completely opened up the pathways and she didn't have to go through the relationship of the oral stage of you know development and all of that stuff. So it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful right. way to approach this. Just to kind of address some of the highlights of your work in hypnosis in general and how it differentiates between some of the more common vernacular about this kind of a therapy. I'm sure you've heard of uh, guided meditations and sessions where people are essentially helped to get to a state where they're relaxed enough to let go of these inhibitions and some of the things that are very rigid in their lives. How is hypnosis different from guided meditation? Guided meditation 
is, first of all, it's more of a practice in and of itself. The idea in meditation is to get over yourself, to just be more open to experience, to let feelings and thoughts just kind of flow through. You may do a body scan where you feel different parts of your body. You practice compassion. That's all good. But the main idea of meditation is to create a world full of meditators. And Lord knows there are a lot of them now, which is terrific. There are a lot of people who do that. But I had one woman who had meditated daily for 10 years. She had migraine headaches, and her headaches were no better at all. So I said, well, I want you in hypnosis now. Hypnosis is very effective for pain control. Imagine that you've got an ice cap on your head. And within a few days, her migraines were gone. And she said, I want to thank you for freeing me uh, to utilize my intentionality. One of the things that happens also in meditation is they turn down activity in the posterior cingulate cortex as you do transiently with hypnosis. But the idea is it's fine to do it for a purpose. It's Western. It's to solve a problem. Whereas meditation, that's not the purpose. It's, it's to just be different. And that's fine too, but it's different it's briefer and it's problem focused. Beautiful. That's fascinating. Yeah. You're talking to uh, two of the most square people you can ever imagine. <laughs> I think we've drank four, you know, five full glasses of wine in, in the last four years or something like that. Something yeah. Like that. No yeah. smoking, no, no pot, no nothing. Not that we're against it. It was just uh, uh, life is busy. But, but nonetheless, the concepts uh, such as psilocybin or you didn't even know I was going to go there. But yeah. <laughs> no, I'm glad. S- 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 and, and these uh, psychedelics. Have you thought about those chemicals and their relation with hypnosis? I have. And I think in a different way, they kind of shake up your view of yourself, but in a very much more intense, dramatic way. You take psilocybin and the walls start moving and you see all these beautiful images and things like that. I've gone over the literature of people who are dying of cancer who take psilocybin. They say, I could look at my own non-being, at my own death, and see how absolutely terrible it would be. But I can also see the beauty of the fact that I'm alive at all. That's a miracle. And Mm -hmm. they never feel quite the same about death. MDMA helps people feel connected to other people. It's very helpful for people with PTSD who often feel shame. They don't deserve positive attention from other people. So feeling connected is therapeutic for them. The thing that strikes me the most about some of these treatments, they also involve similar regions in the brain that involve serotonin processing and in particular posterior cingulate cortex. So there's a rationale from that point of view is that they shake you up. They, They give you a different point of view and you don't have to keep taking them. Pharmaceutical companies love drugs that you have to keep taking. And these are very unusual in that one or two guided experiences sometimes leads to a permanent change in how you feel. You have less control than you do in hypnosis, but some of the mechanisms can be very helpful and very therapeutic. So there's a lot we need to learn about it, but I must say that the literature that's coming out now about ayahuasca and MDMA and psilocybin and some of these other drugs, ketamine and others, is very promising and interesting, actually. Absolutely. I think at, at the minimum... They should be deeply studied because I think there's whole pathways that we have not explored because of, again, limitations, self-imposed limitations. That's right. How does hypnosis help in restructuring these traumatic memories for PTSD patients? What has your experience been in that realm? Dissociation can be an extreme reaction to extreme situations. Most sexual assault victims will tell you that they experienced the rape as if they were floating above their body feeling sorry for the person it was happening to. I treated a woman who was in the World Trade Center when it was attacked. 
And she said, I, I lied to myself. I just told myself if I keep putting one foot in front of the other and I get down to the ground floor, I'll be okay. She did, and she's angry at herself. I said, that lie kept you alive. Many soldiers who get the Congressional Medal of Honor are amazed at what they did. They said, I don't know how I did what I did. I didn't plan it, I just did it. Dissociation is a useful way of protecting yourself from more information than you can handle at any one time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've used controlled dissociation then to help people revisit aspects of the experience that they otherwise had been unable to face. So there was a woman who came to see me. It was an attempted rape. She was badly beaten. She had a Basler skull fracture at the end, but the police kind of lost interest because she wasn't actually raped. She was trying to get a better image of what the guy looked like. And it was getting dark and she couldn't really see it. But I had her in hypnosis, body safe and comfortable. You always remind people when you do it that you may feel strong emotions, but right now your body is safe and comfortable. And one of the other Mm. things that helps with hypnosis is there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not like opening Pandora's box. You can deal with it for a while and then put it away. And so she said, I'm looking at him. If he gets me up to my apartment, he isn't just going to rape me. He's going to kill me. And she had not allowed herself. She had dissociated the extreme threat that she was facing. I said, I want you to look on the other side of the screen and picture what you did to protect yourself. Because everybody in situations does something to protect themselves. And she said, you know what? He's surprised. He didn't think I'd fight him that hard. So she realized that on the one hand, the situation was actually worse than she thought it was. And on the other hand, she probably saved her own life. And so you can use it to help people see the same apparent situation from different points of view. And our brains do that all the time. And this is a way of doing it in a way that gives them control and helps them come to a new perspective on what they did at the time of the trauma. So fascinating. Do you think that there may be some situations, and I would love to hear if you have examples of that, if you've experienced it, you yourself said that some people may be more suggestible in quotations. I'll just put that in quotations because I know you're not fond of that word. Some people may be more suggestible. Is it possible that those kind of individuals in cases like that could potentially go into the realm of sticking to or creating or confabulating stories that didn't exist and for that to become the main narrative of of their life. There's a lot of concern about that. There are people that say that it's dangerous or wrong to use hypnosis, for example, to help people deal with memories of childhood trauma, that they're going to just invent them. There's nothing that you uncover in hypnosis that isn't any more or less likely to be true. Obviously, people can respond to suggestion. And if you have any doubt about that, consider the fact that 70% of Republicans think Trump won the last election. So is it possible that someone can come up with a belief that is a distortion of reality or isn't true with or without hypnosis? Yes. Is it more possible if the person using the hypnosis is pushing them hard? Tell me how tall the man was when he grabbed you from behind and did X, Y, and Z. Really bad interrogation techniques and any police officer would tell you don't do that. That can be worse with hypnosis. But at the same time, it's not a guarantee of truth, but it's not a guarantee of untruth. No, no, you're right. A misuse of a good tool is not grounds for a, a abandonment of it. But the, the fact that some, some tools have the possibility of misuse does speak to codifying techniques and methodologies that 
account for those abuses, right? I'm sure that there are methodology, and you just actually alluded to that right now by saying that you wouldn't do this kind of interrogation and this kind of interrogation. But I think it's it's important that there should be some, and I'm, I'm sure you'll tell us, systems and methodologies that people are supposed to follow when they do this. Because the ground material of consciousness are stories. And that's where confabulation comes in. And I can't tell you, and you know, I can tell you, you've seen it as much as we have, in the emergency room where a person that's been drinking or alcoholic who comes in and you ask him a question and they make up stories. And they're not lying. Where there's an absence, where there's a vacuum, stories must be created. It's just that the dissonance of that vacuum is so great that the fabric of, of consciousness demands stories. Having said that, Aisha's statement kind of speaks to that fact that it's kind of dangerous if the methodology is not codified and, and there's not a system. It could be potentially be abusive, couldn't it? Anything that has the power to help has the power to hurt. There's no doubt about that. But one simple thing that the state of California has done now is it's required that if hypnotic interrogation is done, you video record it. So there are simple safeguards, which are done in non-hypnotic settings as well. Other people can see whether they were being talked into it. The Chowchilla bus kidnapping, do you remember that? It was a school bus that was hijacked, and these guys buried the bus in a trench outside the school and were trying to, to get money for the kids. They finally found the bus... And the bus driver was totally freaked out by what had happened, but he did see the car approaching his bus. He couldn't remember the numbers and letters of the license plate, so he was hypnotized, and he remembered all of the numbers and letters correctly, not in the right order, but it led to the arrest and conviction of the people who did it. Memory is all association, right? It can help stimulate associations correctly. It can also help make mistakes, but if your goal is to help people do the best they can, more often than not, it can be helpful. That's incredible. Where do you see the future of hypnotherapy heading, especially with advances in brain imaging and neuroscience? I'll tell you one area that has driven me to, to build Reverie and, and, and to make it available to people is we published a paper in The Lancet in 2000. It was a randomized clinical trial doing uh, arterial cutdowns for chemoembolization in the liver where visualizing renal artery stenosis. 241 subjects. A third of them had standard care, which was press a button and you can give yourself IV opioids. The second had a friendly nurse, so it was a control for just emotional support. The third was training in self-hypnosis. My body is cool, tingling, and numb. Filter the hurt out of the pain. Go somewhere else you'd rather be than in the operating room. The procedures take about two and a half hours. At the end of an hour and a half, the average pain rating in the standard care group was six out of 10. It was three out of 10 for the, the ones with the nurse and one out of 10 with hypnosis. We measured wow. their anxiety and they were using half as much opioids, half as much opioids. There were fewer That's procedural incredible. complications, less uh, hemodynamic instability because you weren't using the opioids. Um, we measured their anxiety. It was six out of 10 in the standard care group, three out of 10 in the nursing group, zero out of 10 in the hypnosis group. I thought they'd all died or something. They just were, they were fine. Now, if you published a paper like that in the Lancet, randomized clinical trial with results like that, only the intervention was a drug, everybody in the world would be using that drug now, right? And there'd be companies pushing it. It was hypnosis. Is that happening? No. And I thought to myself, Something has to change. Last year, 70,000 Americans died of opioid overdoses, not suicides, just overdosing accidentally because the drug was too potent and it inhibits respiration more than it reduces pain. So people think if the pain's getting worse, I can tolerate more. Nobody has died from the use of hypnosis, and yet it is a potent 
analgesic. It's a potent anti-anxiety drug. We've been able to show uh, using uh, spectroscopy that highly hypnotizable people have more GABA concentration in their dorsal anterior cingulate than less hypnotizable people. So we have our own internal anti-anxiety network there that we don't take full advantage of. And yet people get addicted to anti-anxiety drugs, to benzodiazepines. It can contribute to the development of dementia later in life. More people need to get access to this kind of treatment than they have at the moment. And getting to a clinician who can do it is difficult, it's expensive. Why not take advantage of the app-based world to let anybody anywhere who wants to use this technique use it? And we built it interactively. So if something, if their hand is going up, I tell them one thing. If it's not, I tell them something else. It's, it's much like the experience of me being in the office with them as we can possibly make it. 35% reductions in pain in 15 minutes, 35% reductions in stress levels. We did a study of 15,000 people who had a tremendous reduction in their levels of stress just by learning to do self-hypnosis for a few minutes. So I thought this has to be made available to people um, and, mm -hmm. and why not give it a try and see what happens. And we've had virtually no complications, no problems at all. And a lot of people have found it very helpful in controlling pain, stress, dealing with phobias, uh, getting to sleep, getting back to sleep. I used to think, well, can it really be as good as being in the office with me? And then I thought, well, if you wake up at three in the morning and are having trouble getting back to sleep, you probably don't want me there in your bedroom hypnotizing you to get back to sleep. So, but you've got me on, on the smartphone. We've got thousands of people using it now. We hope many, many thousands of people will take advantage of it, give it a try, see what it's like, and see if it can help them with whatever problems they want to deal with. Beautiful. Wonderful. Beautiful. We'll make sure that we put the details in the show notes so people can actually go and check it out. And what a fantastic tool, especially at a day and time when stress is ubiquitous and anxiety and all these mental health issues. And the sad thing is there are phenomenal practitioners and physicians and healthcare providers like yourself that are there, but people can't get to them. The, the, the typical waiting time of getting to a psychologist or a psychiatrist in a teaching hospital is four months. It's can you imagine four months? is ridiculous so no we appreciate you making this available for everyone and uh, I, th I think i think people should definitely check it out absolutely absolutely amazing well uh, dr Kriegel, this was wonderful this was a topic that we both had personal interest in we will have many other conversations hopefully with you there's a lot of interface of our work so thank you so much for your time You're welcome and just remember that it's a smart hypnotist that knows who is hypnotizing whom so enjoy it together. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you Thank very you so much. much. Thank you for Thank your you. time. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to stay up to date with future episodes, please subscribe and follow our podcast on Apple or Spotify and watch the recordings on our YouTube channel. We would appreciate you supporting this show with your review as it helps it reach more people. We look forward to connecting again in the next episode.